Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Kathy Kelly. Kathy Kelly co-coordinates Voices for Creative Nonviolence. I believe the website is vcnv.org, a wonderful organization and one of our leading peace activists for years, peace worker, human shield, peace uh, advocate in, in every sense. Kathy Kelly was in Baghdad for shock and awe. She has spent much of recent years in Afghanistan, and she is just out of prison where she was sent for protesting drone murders. It is uh, an honor to welcome you to Talk Nation Radio, Kathy Kelly. Hello, David. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, It's great to have you on here. Um, A lot to talk about, a lot going on with war and peace in the world. But let's just start briefly, at least, with what landed you in prison this latest time and, uh, and what happened while you were in there? Well, at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, drones are operated, weaponized drones, that fly over places like Afghanistan and sometimes fire missiles or call in helicopter attacks. And the commander of the base uh, was somebody that I and my co-defendant, Georgia Walker, thought um, should be part of a conversation about the consequences of the drone warfare, and we need to learn more. We need to know how many people were actually killed by drone warfare that day from that base, Uh, that day being the day on June 1st when uh, Georgia and I walked onto the base with a loaf of bread and a letter requesting a chance to meet with the commander. And when we were told that we couldn't be on the base, we re- didn't turn around and walk off. And so instead we were um, pretty swiftly handcuffed and we were taken into custody, charged, and then uh, returned uh, to Missouri in, on December 10th. And the judge, whom I think believed it's his responsibility to protect the weapons, to protect the soldiers, I think it's his responsibility to protect the Constitution, and we were exercising our First Amendment right to assemble peaceably for redress of grievance, but the judge and I disagreed on that. The judge sentenced me to three months in prison. And I served those three months in Lexington, Kentucky, where the United States has a maximum security prison for men, and then a sort of satellite facility where 320 women were imprisoned, and I was one of them for three months. As you're probably aware, the President of the United States, for the first time ever recently, apologized for murdering a couple of people with a drone strike, apparently because one was an American and one was an Italian. How does that fit with the general conduct over the past several years? I think it's very important to pay careful attention to President Obama's language. I I believe him that he, he felt great remorse over the death, and as should we all, of two people that had been hostages. President Obama said that the men were killed because of the fog of war, that there was confusion. But that phrase, fog of war, connotes the idea that there's there's just so much smoke and dust and fire going on that the soldiers can't see properly, that, that there's chaos and that there's a scene wherein, uh, in the confusion, you can't hold the soldiers accountable for which way they're shooting or who might be shot at. Well, that's not what we're talking about in a case when um, the target is static and when there's been a list drawn up of what the targets will be. There's been an assumption that a building is a target because it's assumed that inside that building 
are figures that are associated with the, the Al-Qaeda network. Uh, but, but all of those things don't connote that anybody's shooting at the United States, and in fact, nobody was. And so when the United States says we're threatened by certain individuals that the United States thinks might be people who might be in a certain spot, and it doesn't ask additional questions about exactly whom else might be in that spot, then this is, uh, this is a cause of terror. It terrifies other people in other parts of the world, lest they might be somehow uh, mistaken for or taken for somebody who deserves to be assassinated, deserves to be, as you say, murdered. And it, I think, is something that will proliferate all around the world, and this is something that should also occasion great concern for people in the United States. And we have to hold people accountable for the kinds of technologies that are being developed in the 21st century military and pay very, very close attention to where this is heading. Should we ban weaponized drones? Should we stop using them entirely, we meaning the U.S. government? Uh, or, or should they get their act together and identify exactly who is in which building and make sure they're the, the proper people to murder uh, before sending the missiles? Oh, thank you for that question. Of course, I believe in the former. Don't just ban wars, ban, uh, weaponized drones, ban all wars. I squarely um, identify and passionately want to be committed to the movement to abolish all warfare. And I think, again, as we look at the past uses of violence through war that the United States has um, conducted in the region, whether you're looking at Iraq or Afghanistan or now also Yemen, Libya, uh, Syria, the, the effort of the United States to use war as a means to resolve any kinds of problems has been completely disastrous and has caused incredible bereavement and suffering and loss. Now, perhaps the United States has wanted to create political chaos and upheaval in that part of the world. I, that I'm not myself... Uh, certain about, but I think it is high time that we lay aside the means of warfare and recognize the futility of war and see how many millions of people have been killed by our wars. The Physicians for Social Responsibility recently released a report that seems to me to be very, very important, and I have to confess, having recently been released from prison and then traveled to California, I haven't myself yet read the report. I've only read a summary and it's posted on the Voices website. I encourage people to start to pay attention to that report, which suggests that the numbers of civilians killed by our wars just since 2003 when the U.S. declared the war on terror is uh, from uh, beginning at 1.3 million and possibly as high as 2 million people. Yeah, I think uh, they they put it at 1.3 million, but could be much higher, could be 2 million, and and that they are looking just at Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, so they're not counting Yemen or Somalia or Pakistan, and they're not counting refugees who die elsewhere and and, and so forth. But it's it's important for us to... uh, to recognize the extent of the damage. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm guessing, Kathy, that most of the people in prison with you were not there protesting wars or, or drone murders uh, of any sort. Um, what, what was your experience being locked up with people who were presumably there for something else entirely? Well, it was a very consistent experience that I've had when I've been locked up in a maximum security prison in another minimum security prison in a 
Metropolitan Correctional Center that the federal government runs. And all three of those previous experiences, you know, I one way I could put it is to say, I don't know where they keep the bad sisters. I sure don't meet them. I met women who could have been my coworkers, my neighbors, my in-laws, uh, women for whom life had taken a very bad turn, uh, many of them uh, because of involvement with narcotics. And I, I just want to offer to our listeners a, a statistic from the New York Review of Books that sort of startled me, actually, when I first saw it. Um, in 2012, a survey was made which showed that for people who were narcotics defendants in United States federal courts, those who accepted a plea bargain, meaning the prosecutor says, if you plead guilty to this crime, if you don't put us through the hassle of taking this to court, then you'll get a certain sentence. And if you don't plead guilty, if you go to court, you'll likely get a much higher sentence. And it scares people. And so they plead guilty. Well, those who pled guilty had an average of five years, four months as their prison sentence. Those who said, no, I'm taking this to trial and didn't plead guilty had an average sentence of 16 years in prison. And so this um, process of pleading guilty has affected um, as many as 97% of the cases in the United States so that people don't go to trial. They don't have uh, an access to a jury of their peers. They instead plead guilty as to the charges. And, And so this gives the prosecutors a great deal of power, and they wield that power in ways that have helped to increase the mass incarceration in the United States um, such that between mandatory sentencing and the plea, gar- plea bargaining institution, we have jails that are uh, so very, very overcrowded and costs that are skyrocketing. And so there I was with 300 um, or more women who had been affected by this process, and many of them facing long sentences, many who had already been in prison for some as long as five or ten years, and they become so isolated from their families. You know, I was with women who um, lived in North Carolina, Virginia, uh, different parts of Illinois. Uh, they, they, their families couldn't very easily pack up the kids and come and travel there to visit them. Phone calls are 21 cents per minute. Well, the women earn 12 cents uh, an hour. And so it would take two hours of their work to earn enough money for one minute of a phone call. And, and people don't always have a, a family that can say, well, we'll put money on your commissary, we'll put money on your books. And so even affording stamps is quite difficult. So you see people becoming isolated, feeling a, a sort of weariness, longing, just absolutely longing for their, their time to be done and to, to be restored to their families. We are speaking with Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence, recently out of prison, uh, having protested drone murders at Whiteman Air Force Base. Kathy, you have spent a good deal of time in Afghanistan in recent years, and I was there with you very briefly on one of your trips, and I've been around the country speaking lately, and I continue to get this question about didn't Barack Obama come into the White House and end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and wasn't that a good thing? Uh, Whereas, in fact, he escalated the war in Afghanistan, which was larger under his presidency than under Bush's until uh, fairly recently. What is what is the uh, an accurate understanding of the recent history of Afghanistan? Well, I think it's important to note that it's an estimate of uh, forty-one billion dollars that the Pentagon is asking for for continued U.S. presence in Afghanistan. 
the statistics are, are staggering when you look at how many children are suffering from severe acute malnourishment. 517,000 Afghan children suffering from severe acute malnourishment. Uh, there's a um, statistic from UNICEF that I just read yesterday that 750,000 Afghans are in situations of prolonged displacement, which means they're living in refugee camps, displaced from their homes, and often living under very, very wretched circumstances without adequate access to water, uh, certainly with uh, very, very little access to jobs. And so the streets are filled with little children that are sent out to work. 6,000 children in Kabul alone are working on the streets, shining shoes or um, selling tissue paper. But this work can become quite dangerous as they grow older and become prey to gangs that might try to recruit them to perhaps begin to sell drugs or to smuggle drugs or in some cases for the girls to become even part of prostitution rings. And so it's very bad for these children to remain in the streets. So the United States has spent in non-military aid $104 billion, more money than was spent on the Marshall Plan. And yet when you try to figure out where did this money go, did it go to improved health, did it go to alleviate, did it go to alleviate hunger, did it go to um, help to uh, seriously educate women and girls, uh, on no measure can you find improvements in Afghanistan. The levels of corruption escalated throughout the United States presidency. Uh, return of the growth of the poppy crop has been such that Afghanistan now is the world's, uh, one of the world's largest exporters. Uh, it, it supplies 70 to 80 percent of the world's opium. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the United States Seagar report says, well, there was a huge chunk of money put into counter-narcotics, a, a huge chunk of money put into uh, surveilling and oversight of for better governance. Well, Afghanistan was listed as one of the top most corrupt countries in the world, tying with North Korea and Somalia in 2014, and I think it achieved second place in 2000, uh, sorry, 2013, and it came in second in 2014. So what has the United States warfare in Afghanistan accomplished? Uh, according to some estimates, 70% of the country is under the control of the Taliban. The young people you met, David, with the Afghan peace volunteers are not able to go back and visit their families for fear of traveling along roadsides, people say, well, the Taliban could take Kabul, but it doesn't want to because it would be such a headache to try and run a, a city where the infrastructure is so debilitated. I mean, there's electricity every other day in in Kabul itself and in other parts of the country, no electricity at all. So what the United States has created in Afghanistan is a nightmare. Uh, the, I believe that the United States should pay reparations for the suffering caused but not entrust those reparations to any agencies organized or dominated by the United States. Well, I wonder what should have been done. You know, I've always said the United States should have sent aid rather than militarism. I, I heard Shira Nabadi uh, uh, speaking once again as saying the same thing she has said for years and years now, that the United States should have built schools rather than uh, send in the military. She was saying this at the 100th anniversary of the uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And, uh, and yet I was on a panel just this past week with uh, the director of Ron Paul's uh, Peace Institute, uh, who was using the story that you just told about misspent U.S. non-military aid to supposedly prove that a government cannot 
uh, actually give aid, uh, and therefore the best thing to do would have been simply nothing. Uh, what's your response? Well, I think the United States could be building up a reservoir of goodwill with countries all around the world if we um, did our best to be of assistance when countries are facing a very severe crisis. With regard to uh, September 11th and the attacks, I think the United States should have engaged in detective and policing work to try to find out who were the perpetrators of that attack, but certainly never to go to war. I think that if the United States would negotiate fair trade relationships and um, be regarded as a country that uh, can be counted on to be of assistance. I mean, I think about little Cuba and how many people have been helped because Cuban doctors have gone to places of crises and remained through the crises and been of extraordinary help to people in other parts of the world, including Pakistan, for instance, uh, during times of flood. I mean, the United States could build up a very strong reservoir of goodwill. I don't believe that the United States should be isolationist and just um, turning its back on other people. But I, I certainly don't believe that the United States, through its military prowess, can ever make a positive difference in the various crises that are emerging, some of which the United States has caused because of its, its war-making. But I don't think the United States, uh, at, our, at this point in history, can resolve civil wars in one way or another because of the United States military interventions. And we may not like who gets the upper hand, who becomes the more organized force, or who redraws borders in different ways, but I don't think that the United States is the one to determine that. And I, I would hope that we, in our world, could strengthen the United Nations, and most especially the General Assembly of the United Nations. But I think right now the United States is trying to provoke Russia and China and uh, pivot itself so that it has a better ability to control the pricing and flow of resources in various parts of the world. And that's what determines and governs when the United States decides to send in drones or joint special operations forces or aerial bombardments or, you know, decide to pick out one warlord or another and say, we're going to ally ourselves and associate with this particular group. Well, how big a role do you think that profiting from uh, the weaponry of war itself plays? Uh, we, we think of these regions as so violent, and yet uh, the bulk of the weaponry is manufactured in the United States and sold to them or given to them. Uh, how, how big a factor would that be to take away uh, the armaments? Well, sadly, these major weapon companies can just about purchase Congress people. And I think that the lobbying strength of the major weapon companies is, is certainly helping to drive the likelihood of people obtaining weapons, and sometimes, you know, both sides of a conflict are using U.S.-supplied or U.S.-made weapons to fight. And so certainly that's a big driving factor of ongoing warfare. And meanwhile, as long as the Pentagon and the military-industrial complex commandeer so much of our resources, our productivity, our ingenuity, we are uh, almost impossibly handicapped in terms of dealing with the very real terror we all face, which is the terror of what we're doing to our own environment. I mean, add to that the fact that the military is one of the largest consumers of fossil fuels in the United States, and we have the, the reality that oil companies are continuing to suck out the, the oil under the surface, the fuels under the surface of our Earth, and we won't have a habitable planet. This is a catastrophe 
we're moving toward and we won't be able to have the scientific wherewithal or the financial wherewithal to deal with these problems of global warming, climate change, and the changes in our lifestyles that are necessary, along with the accountability and uh, restrictions that have to be devised in terms of these major companies that continue to profit from uh, the selling and the uh, development of energy resources that are so debilitating for the planet, we won't be able to solve these problems if the military commandeers our scientists our resources, and to the extent that it currently does. And, and so uh, it, I, I am myself wondering um, where people can turn for an articulate voice to uh, help us get through these very catastrophic events that are seemingly imminent. Well, we are grateful to have your articulate voice on this program. Uh, when I tell people, Kathy Kelly, to get the money out of the military and put it into environmental and climate protection, they say, no, 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 what about ISIS? ISIS could be the new Hitler. We must prevent the evil people of ISIS killing us. And the, the congressman this past week who introduced the, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act said with a straight face that the United States has never before faced the sorts of threats that it faces right now uh, in terms of evil war-making enemies. How do you, what's your response to that, and, and where did ISIS come from, and what should be done about it? Well, I think it's so crucial that we take a cue from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech, given at the Riverside Church in 1967. He said, try to understand the humanity of your adversaries. Now, I know that's hard to do when people are looking at a, a, a vengeful beheading and seeing people cheer it. I, 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 that's a vicious reality, and it's horrible. Uh, but what about the practices of the United States? Shouldn't we be asking, is it possible that some of the people who've joined ISIS as fighters or who've looked the other way if ISIS has uh, claimed territory... If, could it be that some of those people were the brothers or the fathers or the uncles of children who were among the half-million Iraqi children who died as a direct result of economic sanctions that the United States placed on Iraq from the time Saddam Hussein had invaded in 1990, from the time he invaded Kuwait, and those sanctions were never lifted until 2003? Is it possible that some of those people lived in Iraq during the shock and awe bombing and I was there. Believe me, that bombing was shocking, and it was awful. And in the hospitals, we were at the bedsides of children whose limbs had been ripped off, whose organs had been exploded. And perhaps some of those people were survivors of that extremely traumatic warfare. Maybe some of those people were related to people who were in the Abu Ghraib prison who were subjected to torture. Maybe they themselves were imprisoned. Remember, the person who declared himself as the self-styled caliph of the caliphate is Ali Baghdadi, who himself was locked up in the Bukha compound, and I went to that prison. It's one of the most beleaguered, awful places I ever saw. We were literally spitting flies out of our mouths. It was a blistering hot day. It was a primitive tent encampment at the time that I visited it, and young men told me they were paraded naked in front of United States women, military soldiers. I mean, the abuses toward Iraq are... Uh, uh, something that, of course, would create a terrible trauma that would, of course, give rise to people joining violent movements. 
ISIS is terrible, but we're not going to change ISIS by going in with aerial bombardments and uh, contributing further weaponry to the region. Uh, they have, of course, been uh, claiming recently to have killed Baghdadi, um, which your analysis suggests, well, would not uh, eliminate uh, the movement or the sources behind it. But, but what should be done? Uh, we, we should understand the humanity. We should understand the causes. We never, the U.S. government never should have created the chaos that created ISIS. But what should be done now? Well, certainly every effort should be made to support the um, organizations, the United Nations and other organizations that are trying to give uh, solace and comfort and care to refugees. Uh, the people have been uh, pouring into uh, neighboring areas, and some of those areas are themselves because are, are also becoming increasingly unstable. But there should be every effort to give support to refugees. I think there should be every effort to try to um, raise quotas in terms of absorbing refugees who fled from the areas so that they can try to find safety in other countries. I think that it's important to um, make sure that those who might want to uh, flee from ISIS, maybe they um, themselves were people who at one point had uh, wanted to join ISIS, if there's some possibility that they would uh, run away from ISIS, make sure there's a place that they, where they could be absorbed, where they could find a dignified future life. And of course, you know, people might be seeing a huge price tag to all of that, but let me suggest, you know, examine the price tag that the Pentagon is asking for its military budget for this year. And we should be taking those resources and applying them to ways in which we can build up, as I say, a reservoir of goodwill in regions because we have tried to be of assistance, tried to help people reclaim their dignity and have a potential better future. Well said. Kathy Kelly, with just a minute or so left, what can people do who want to take meaningful action against the ongoing endless warfare of the U.S. government and other governments, and, and how can they get involved and help with Voices for Creative Nonviolence? Well, we certainly welcome people to be in close touch with us. Voices for Creative Nonviolence has a website, bcnv.org. Anybody who'd like to take a very healthy, invigorating long walk is welcome to join us in the second half of August in Madison, Wisconsin, walking from that city to uh, Vogue Airfield, where drones are being piloted, weaponized drones, uh, over other lands, and to help um, raise awareness, raise consciousness as we would walk through Wisconsin's beautiful uh, rural areas and a few cities. I, I think it's also important you know, to heed what... Kurt Vonnegut once said, get yourself a gang. <laughs> Find kindred spirits in your area. Link up with some of the groups that are doing wonderful work. Veterans for Peace has a great brochure out now challenging the environmental uh, impact of the militarism. I think there are uh, groups locally in every city and every town that are both trying to meet the needs of the neediest people in their areas with soup kitchens and shelters. You find those people in your area, and pretty soon you'll find your way to the people that are also trying to make a difference in terms of uh, declaring sane and uh, viable policies for a better future for our children. So I, I, I hope that people will uh, reckon with the catastrophes we're moving toward. This is a time to take adult responsibility for the policies in our country no time to remain distracted by sports and entertainment and, uh, you know, whatever 
is being dangled in front of us in, in, in the Internet usage, and instead, you know, put that Internet to work for us so that we can do adequate research and start to clamor for immediate changes in United States policy. Okay, everybody, you heard her. Get to work. Kathy Kelly, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.